Okay, I can't remember the last time that I started a sermon series on Sunday morning and one on Sunday night at the same time and both of them from an epistle. So I've got to try and keep my mind straight whether I'm saying John or Paul. So if I say the wrong one, you'll forgive me, okay? I'll try to remember and, and say the right one in the right place. Um, and interestingly enough, in both cases, we start with, if not the same message because they're at least the same approach because in both cases we start with the opening of a letter it's really interesting I've learned over these last six and a half years that I've been serving as your senior pastor that a lot can be said in an American letter by how I close it specifically how I decide to put my name at the bottom of the letter. If uh, it is to a first-time guest, it's Pastor Steve. If it is to a senior adult who is struggling with the loss of a loved one or struggle, it's Brother Steve. Um, if it is a young person, it's P. Steve, and sometimes even to some of you. Um, to the staff, it is just my initials, S.N., uh, to Sharon, it's just the letter S, and when she writes me, it's S-H, and um, to my mom, it's your always loving son, uh, so it just depends, but, but it's interesting how you change, and the way that you address a person when you're writing them, and the way you sign your name says a lot about the relationship that you have with them. Obviously, I am not going to use something as cutesy as peace very first time on a Sunday morning and don't know me other than they've just seen my face in the in the pulpit um, at the same time I'm not going to refer to myself as Pastor Steve to someone that um, um, I feel like I have an intimate relationship with as we've walked down certain paths together I think the same thing is true with the letters of Paul one of the advantages of having 12 letters that he wrote is the fact that we see different ways in which he addresses the churches to whom he is writing. So tonight, very simple message. Uh, this is one of those that you preach after you've been on vacation for a week. Um, but I still believe that God's got something to say to us. Don't get me wrong. But it's not going to be full of a lot of doctrinal depth. It's going to talk about how we can see Paul's relationship to the church at Philippi and how he sets the stage for what he's going to be telling them in this letter and then see how that applies to our lives. So let's read together very simply. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You follow along as I read. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you've taught us, and we've just been talking about in Bible study, the fact that all Scripture is given by your inspiration, and all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproving, for correcting, and for instructing. And I pray tonight that in these two short verses, as we open them up and expose them by your Spirit, that they will do just that. That they will teach us, they will reprove us where we have failed, they will correct us so we can get back on track, and they will instruct us in how we can stay in line with where you would want us to be. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. What in the world can we glean from those two short verses? Well, let's start out by looking at some of the things that are unique to this opening 
As I told you this morning in the, in the message on 1 John chapter 1, most letters in the ancient world had the name of the person, the name of the recipient, and some type of word of greeting, okay? So oftentimes it would be that simple. Paul to the church at Corinth, greetings, or something like that. Bill to Mary, greetings. And that's all that would be there. That would, just, that would be the way that they would open, open up a letter. So it's interesting that there's probably at least three or four things that are unique about this opening from most of Paul's other letters. The first thing you notice are the people who are doing the writing. It doesn't just say Paul. It says Paul and Timothy. Why would Paul include Timothy in this letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi? Well, probably because Timothy had a very important role in that process, in starting the church at Philippi. If you go back and read Acts chapter 16 through 18 again and see what it says, you'll see that, that, that Timothy played a very important role in the life and the starting of the Philippian church. They knew him almost certainly very, very well. Later in Philippians, we'll see that Paul's plan after this letter is sent to them is he's going to send Timothy to them to minister to them and spend some time with them. This doesn't mean they were co-writers. Doesn't necessarily mean they were co-authored the letter. Paul just wanted them to understand that he did not do the things that he did on his own. And that's our first clue to what he's wanting to teach them. Paul wanted them to understand that he was not a lone ranger. It's not all about me. I am not God's gift to the church. I am just one servant, and I have many fellow servants that work with me. And one of them happens to be a dear friend of yours, this young man, named Timothy. So we notice that this is kind of a unique way. He lists another person along with himself at the very opening. The next thing we notice is the title that he attaches to the two of them. What does he call them? What does he call himself and Timothy? Somebody just shout out for us. Slaves or servants, okay? Depending on the translation that you have. The word is doulos, very common word in the New Testament. It was a word in the Greek world that was a very pejorative term, a very negative term, a very demeaning term, a very humbling term. It was not a nice thing to say about somebody else or about yourself. It was someone who had lost their freedom, usually because of a debt that they owed, and that they had to spend their lives working to pay off that debt. For those of you that have read your epistles, what is a term? Well, I don't want to make a pop quiz here. There's another term Paul often uses to describe himself in most of his letters that he doesn't use here, and that's the word apostle. Paul often says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, he only uses the word servant to, to address himself or to describe himself in the opening of three of his letters. This one, Romans, and the book of Titus. So only three times in all of Paul's letters where he refers to himself in the opening as a slave or a servant of God or of Christ. But in the other two cases, both in Romans and in Titus, he merely follows that up with some allusion to his apostleship. For example, just so you see, flip back to the beginning of Romans. Keep your finger in Philippians, but go back to Romans chapter 1 and look at the way he starts that letter. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, there of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. Then he goes on with his greeting from there. So he immediately appends, he calls himself a servant, but he then immediately says that he also is an apostle 
or had been called to be an apostle. And then, I won't ask you to take the time, but in the book of Titus, he refers to himself, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. But in this case, he doesn't use the title apostle. He doesn't even mention it. And there is a lot of discussion about why was it that he didn't do that. I think that's the second clue as to what he's wanting, that Tony's wanting to set in this letter. Leave it for now to say that Paul had an intimate relationship with the Philippian church. He loved them dearly. They were very close to him, and he didn't feel like he had to flaunt his authority. He didn't have to flex his muscle. It wasn't like the situation in Corinth where they were in rebellion. It wasn't like the situation in Galatia where they were, had been deceived and tricked. It wasn't like Rome where he'd never been there, did not know them. This was a situation where Paul was intimately related. We remember the Philippian stories. Remember the Philippian jailer? Remember Lydia? Those wonderful stories from Philippi. And his time that he spent there and the love that he had for them and the love that they had for him. So he didn't need to say, I just want to remind you, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, no, I'm Paul along with Timothy and we are servants of Jesus Christ. We are his slaves. And by the way, interestingly enough, by the time we get to the end of Philippians, we realize that Paul has taken this word doulos, this word slave, and he has transformed it from a word that is demeaning and denigrating and humbling into one of the greatest titles of honor that anyone can be given. Just think about Philippians chapter 2 and what he says about Jesus, who humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a slave, a doulos. And if our master became a doulos, then what an honor it must be for us to be called doulos, doulai, as well because we also are slaves we also are servants okay that's the second thing third thing the people that he greets to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and the deacons a couple of things are interesting in this part of the passage number one he refers to them as to all the saints. Usually he'll either say to the church in or to the believers in. So in some ways this is synonymous, but it's not exactly synonymous. What do we think of when we think of saints? What well, we think of sanctification. We think of the fact that we have been set apart. We think about the fact that God has put his cleansing spirit into us that is conforming us into the image of Christ. And one commentator in particular, whom I dearly love and respect, talked about the fact that when we think about holiness, when we think about sanctification, when we think about being saints, we always or almost always think of it in terms of the kind of life that we live, the way that we act, the things that we say, the things that we do and don't do and all of that. And that is part of our sanctification. That is part of our holiness. That is part of us being made into the saints that we are by our salvation. He said, but isn't it interesting that Paul used the term saints to identify them as a group? In other words, he, he, he uses that as a synonym for the church to remind them that we're all saints together, which means that we're accountable to one another, and we encourage each other, and we sharpen each other, and we teach each other, and we help each other to grow and to become more like Christ in our day-to-day lives. And so often when we think in the church today about sanctification, about holiness, about being made into the image of Christ, we think about our individual relationship with him and how we are growing in Christ-likeness. We don't think about the fact that that also binds us together with other people who are on the same road that we are. 
that we're all growing in Christ-likeness. That's why testimonies are so important. Why it's so important for us in a Sunday school class or in a Bible study or even in a worship service. And my goal this summer is to get us back into a routine of having times of sharing what God is doing in our lives so that our experiences, both good and bad, can help strengthen others as we grow together in Christ's likeness. Paul says, hey, I know you're a church. I know you're a body. I know you're a family, but I want to call you saints because I want you to remember that you're all saints together. And then he says to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Now, this is not because I've been reading Mark Dever. This is not because I have read the ninth mark of the nine marks of a healthy church. But we can't deny what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, I'm writing this, Paul says, to the church at Philippi, to the saints at Philippi, including those who are your overseers, pastors, elders. The three words are absolutely synonymous in Scripture. They're just three descriptions of the same office. Okay, so don't think that there are pastors and elders and deacons. That's not what the Bible says at all. Pastor, overseer, and elder really all describe the same office. And then you have the deacon office. And so he says, I'm greeting all of you, including your leaders, your overseers, and your deacons. One thing we learned from this is Paul did not believe in a one-man show. He didn't say including your overseer and your deacons. He said your overseers and your deacons. If you go to Acts chapter 20 when Paul is traveling back to Jerusalem and he calls for the, for the leaders of the church at Ephesus to come, it says, and the elders came and met with him. And so one thing we see in the early church was that in most cases, in those churches, they had a group of men who served together as the overseers. Now, whether that means we should have that today or not is something that every church has to decide for themselves. In one sense, if you have a multiple pastored staff, you have elders. You have multiple pastoral leaders, okay? That's a discussion for another day. But the reality is, is that already by the time of the church at Philippi, the church was beginning to get organized, I'm sure in the earliest days of the church, right around the time of Pentecost, there was a lot of just loose fitting. They were sharing together. They were singing together. You know, he talks about in, in, uh, in Galatians about one will give this and one will do that and one will do another and one will give a word of, of, of encouragement. But by the time we get to Philippians, which is one of the later letters, about the same time as the book of Ephesians, you're beginning to see some organization. And in just a few years, Paul is going to write the qualifications for these two offices in his letter to Timothy and then again in his letter to Titus. So, but he never uses this, this phrase in any of his other openings to any of his other letters. Only here. And I'm not really sure why. I'm not sure that any of the commentators have even tried to guess why. The only thing I would say is that he wanted to make sure they understood that the most important people he was writing to were not the leaders. It was the members of the church. You notice he puts the church first, and then he says, including your overseers and deacons. He didn't say, now, I'm writing this to the overseers and deacons, and you need to share this with the church family. No, 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 no. In his letter, he was writing to the church, and he says, oh, and by the way, including those that are leading you and serving you as overseers and deacons. The last thing we note is not anything really unique, but I think it's very important to remember, and that is that instead of just saying greetings, which was the normal opening, he changed the word, the word, the word in the Greek is karain. If you, if you spell it with English letters, it would be C-H-A-R-E-I-N. That is the word in the Greek for greetings, and it was used a gazillion times in Greek manuscripts and Greek letters throughout 
literature. You can see it in multiple places. It's used all the time, Karain, C-H-A-R-E-I-N. He changes it to the word C-H-A-R-I-S, which is the word for grace. So he didn't just greet them. How you doing? Good to see you. He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This concept of grace is a very Greek sort of concept. This idea of this unmerited love, this love that is given to someone who does not deserve it. There are writings in the secular literature of the first century Greece about the special quality in a person who would extend love to someone who did not deserve that love. I T-bone your car. I run a red light and hit you as you're going through the intersection. Not only do you not sue me, you offer to fix my car as well because you know I have no money to fix my own car. Taking me to court and having my insurance pay to have your car repaired is what's righteous. Saying, you know what, we'll just each fix our own car, that would be wonderful, that would be loving. But to say, you know what, Steve, I'll fix your car for you too. That is grace. That is unmerited, undeserved favor. And Paul says to this Philippian church, my prayer for you is that you will know and understand the grace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the second word he uses is the word peace, which is more of a Hebrew term, that term shalom. And we've talked about it several times. Let me just remind us of what that is. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict. Right now, me and my next-door neighbor, my next-door neighbor and I, excuse me, my bad grammar, my next-door neighbor and I are at peace with one another. After his major back surgery, I think he kind of had a humbling time, and he's been very, very kind to me, and I have always tried to be kind to him, but to be honest with you, at times the, the kindness was a little frosted over. I just got to be honest with you, okay? But, but we have a wonderful relationship right now. But to say that it's shalom, to say that we are in an intimate relationship with one another, I, I, I don't think we're there yet. I'm praying that we'll get there. But right now, there's just no conflict between us. Okay, there's no conflict. We get along, we greet each other. I wished him happy birthday yesterday and, and, and all that kind of good stuff. But shalom in the Hebrew was a sense of well-being, a sense that things are right with the world. That feeling you have when you sit out there in your garden of an evening as the sun is going down and you look and you watch the birds flitter through the trees and you just feel that you're at peace with the world. That is shalom. And Paul recognizes that peace can only come to the Philippians through Jesus Christ. It's never going to come through anything else. It's going to come because they've received God's grace, which is why he puts grace first, I believe. He says grace and peace. So grace comes, that unmerited love, that love that reaches out to us when we are at our worst, and it brings to us a sense of God's peace so that we then can recognize the fact that our lives are both blessed and carried by God the Father and by our Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, that's another one of those instances where he's just putting in a strong Christological note there that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just some guy that God chose to do a job. He is the one who gives grace and peace equally with the Father. We'll get to that again when we get to Philippians chapter 2. Okay, thanks a lot, Peace Steve. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? When I look at these two verses, the thing that I hear Paul emphasizing is his own humility. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He doesn't take all the credit. He includes Timothy on the list. He greets the church and then the leaders to remind the leaders that they are servants of the church, not masters over the church. 
And he is building a case for this humble, servant-hearted, servant-minded relationship that we should have within the church of Jesus Christ. He is opening up this idea by the very way that he opens his letter that he's going to model for them what it's like to say, hey, I'm not here to say the big guns are here now. I'm not here to say you better look out because i got some things to say to you. I'm here as your servant, as a servant, as a slave of Jesus Christ. And I want to model for you the way I want you to be. Because now we're all, we're all leaning, at least I am, leaning toward Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. So here is our master who has humbled himself. So Paul starts the letter by putting himself in a one-down position, not a one-up position. Oh, we're experts in America getting one up on somebody. We, we can play one-upmanship all day long. But playing one-downmanship, that's another matter. Playing, the ga- not the game, but, but taking the position where we humble ourselves and put others above us. Paul says, Timothy and I are your slaves. Overseers, deacons, you are servants of your church. So Paul begins as he writes. And my question to us tonight is, When people listen to us talk, when they watch our actions, when they see what we do and what we say, what message are we sending to them about the God that we serve? When we call the waitress over at Denny's and fuss at her because the eggs are too cold or the hash browns aren't brown enough or we fuss at the guy that worked on our car because it doesn't smell right inside the car when we go to pick it up. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking them to, to correct something. Don't get me wrong. I think that's, that's perfectly fine. But what do our actions, what is the way that we present ourselves, the way we speak about ourselves, what, is the, what does that say to people? What message does that give to the people that watch us? we're going to have a big celebration and we need lots of tables and chairs set up and you decide to get here early to maybe you could help out on a sunrise service or for a homecoming or in some other event and you see 13 of the brightest and godliest men in our church our deacons out there with their sleeves rolled up toting chairs and setting them out what does that tell you about the love they have for you what does it tell you about their attitude about being deacons that they see themselves as your servants And they model for you, for us, the way we should serve each other. One of the funniest memories I have of my early years here was the year that we were, I'm not supposed to say stupid at all, Sharon, always, we were silly enough. I was teaching the Bible story. It seems like I've always taught the Bible story. And we were doing it back there in in, um, the old senior adult classroom, the big classroom on the back hall. And we were silly enough to think, wouldn't it be great if the kids could sit around on hay bales? And we had about 12 hay bales in that classroom. And after a week of kids being in that room every day, there was a hay floor, okay? And Charlie Antry and I 
were there Friday night after the movie was over till at least one o'clock. We would vacuum and then we'd clean the vacuum cleaner out. And then we'd vacuum some more, then we'd clean the vacuum cleaner out. And we'd vacuum some more and it'd get clogged and we'd clean it out. And we were laughing after a while. I said, This is just crazy. This is just, what, what, were we, what were we thinking? You know? But Charlie was going to be there. And I've seen other of these men. I've seen Sunday school teachers that will spend hours and hours and hours pouring over God's word in order to teach a 35 minute. Bible study lesson or 45 minute Bible study lesson so how does the way that we act and the things that we say and the way that we live what does that say about the God we serve Paul starts his letter saying we love you we are your servants because we're servants of God we want your leaders to remember the fact that they also serve and we only want what's best for you do our lives say that to the people around us? If not, maybe we should pray. Father, I know there are times when I am not a good testimony of humility and grace and service.